Welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Sean McKenna. You know we're leaving the COVID era because stories like this are back in the news. The footage shows a 17-year-old licking soy sauce bottles and cups and touching other customers' sushi with saliva on his hands. This destructive behavior has sent shockwaves through the industry. Could this be the end of conveyor belt sushi? And this one? Look what washed up on the beach in Japan. In fact, nobody seems to know where it came from or what it is part of. Here's what we do know. The mystery debris is spherical in shape. Conspiracy theories ran rampant with people on social media guessing it was an egg laid by Godzilla or a dragon ball from the popular cartoon. And at the start of the year, listeners overseas may remember the hullabaloo around the idea that the Japanese government was going to pay people 1 million yen to leave Tokyo. One million dollars. No, Dr. Evil, that's 1 million yen, not dollars. My sister made the same mistake. Still, 1 million yen is a pretty big deal. And you know what's better than 1 million yen? 2 million yen. And that's what the government of Fukushima is offering families willing to relocate to their prefecture. The conditions? You must not have lived in Fukushima within the past three years. And you must stay there for five years and try to start a career or possibly a business there. This week, as we mark the 12th anniversary of the Great East Japan earthquake, we'll discuss efforts to repopulate the region with people. But they're going to have to deal with the bears, boars, and monkeys that have moved in in the years since. With me this week to talk about where Fukushima is in its recovery, 12 years after it suffered the worst nuclear disaster since Chernobyl, is Alex Martin. He traveled to Fukushima recently to talk to people about why they're moving back and what life is like there now. Alex, welcome back to Deep Dive. Thanks, Sean. First of all, would you move to Fukushima for 2 million yen? Hmm, good question. Uh, perhaps not right now. We have a family with two kids and they're going to school. 2 million yen is a nice bonus, but uh, it's probably not enough to entice me into moving. Right. It's also like only about $15,000, right? So, right. Yeah. Well, you have visited the prefecture several times in the past 12 years. How would you describe the state of its recovery? Well, this is not just limited to Fukushima, but the other affected prefectures, Miyagi, uh, Iwate, Fukushima. When I visited around that area right after the disaster, I mean, obviously it was a wreck, right? Mm. It's been ravaged by the tsunami and the earthquake. It's, it's like a war zone, pretty much. But uh, and it's been 12 years, you know, a lot of money has been invested in the area, new seawalls, new roads, uh, new communities. I wouldn't say back to what it was before, mm. but it's very clean now. Okay, it might look new. Yes. Right. So you may not be up for taking the 2 million yen offer, but for a piece that's coming out this weekend, you spoke to Naomi Yonakawa, who did take the offer. Tell us a little bit about her. Right. So I met Naomi-san at uh, the town of Naraha in Fukushima. That's where she moved in uh, late 2021. So she grew up in Meguro, I think she said near Daikanyama, so she's a city girl mm -hmm. for most of her life. And uh, before the move, she was living in uh, Machida, which is a town in uh, Tokyo. And I think it was 2016, she took like a coastal tour of Fukushima, basically visiting the affected areas and talking to local people to learn about the area and its culture and all that. And during her trip, she stopped by Naraha, which is where she's living now. I think locals hosted like a small sort of workshop to create these waraji, which is Japanese traditional sandals. Okay. I think that memory sort of lingered on for a long time, eventually convincing her that uh, this is a place to move. Okay. So she went on this tour and then she comes back to Tokyo and then we, meaning the whole world, hits a bit of a rough patch in the form of a global pandemic. And so what happens to Naomi when she comes back? Well, I mean, she was in Tokyo well before the pandemic began. 
However, I think it was 2021, so two years ago in January, just two days before she was supposed to open a small coffee stand. It was her dream to have uh, launch a coffee stand. Mm. Anyway, her mom dies uh, alone in her apartment. And uh, she scrapped the plans to open the shop because she had to uh, plan for the funeral. And that was settled. So uh, she decided to open her cafe a few months later in May, I think. Mm. And she asked uh, a good friend of hers uh, to create the logo for the new cafe. Okay. But this friend of hers uh, had breast cancer and she passed away in July that year. Right. So that's two deaths of close uh, family and friend. At the same time, her son is autistic and uh, he had these panic attacks at school. And uh, she would be sort of summoned by his teachers and sort of asked about his behavior. And all this stress was piling up and you know, everything was not really working out the way she wanted it to be. Yeah. And then one day, I think late that summer, she was on the Odakyu line. And you know, in Japanese trains, they have these advertisements sort of hanging? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So one of them was advertising a disaster memorial museum that opened in uh, Namie, which is another affected town uh, in Fukushima. And that sort of, I guess, gave her an inspiration. She sort of remembered her trip from five years ago. And she's like, okay, what's going on there? And she went online and she discovered that uh, Fukushima had just launched in July 2021 a new sort of a relocation, a migration campaign, asking for people to move into these uh, communities. Mm. Could she have gone anywhere in the prefecture? So the deal was that if you're moving into uh, one of the 12 affected municipalities, this includes cities like Minamisoma, uh, towns like Naraha, even Futaba and Okuma, although those two towns are pretty much off limits still. Uh-huh. If you're moving in alone, uh, you get up to 1.2 million yen in uh, grants. Uh, if you're moving in with family, it's 2 million yen. So it's, it was a pretty good deal compared to uh, the other sort of uh, rural migration campaigns uh, that's ongoing, sponsored by the government. Okay. And so she moves there with her son and leaves behind her husband and daughter in Tokyo, right? Right. So she's married. She has two kids. The older uh, daughter is in high school and her husband has work. So she left her husband and her daughter in Tokyo and she decided to move with her son. Okay. And how is that going for her? Does she think she made the right decision? I think so. Um, I mean, it's a completely different environment, obviously. She told me that uh, when she took this tour in 2016, she sort of fell in love with the area's rice paddies, Mm. very sort of uh, rural, you know, scenery. And uh, she's actually living right by this exact rice paddy that she sort of fell in love with five years ago. It's like a one-story house, very clean, nice. She has a car now. Uh, She never drove in Tokyo. I don't think, you know, many of us do anyway here. (laughs) Yeah. So many trains and buses to get around with. So she, you know, she works on her driving skills and she works at a local supermarket. Okay. It's the first uh, full-time job she ever had, actually. She was a homemaker for most of her life. Right. But uh, she's a very chatty, sort of uh, happy, uh, outgoing person. And it seems like she's getting along with the locals. Her kid, her 10-year-old son, seems to be having a much better time at the local elementary school. Okay. And I guess that's sort of a better environment for her son. Okay. So is Naomi Yonikawa kind of the ideal person that they're trying to attract? I think so. Um, She's 45. She's relatively young. Uh, She has a young kid and uh, she's willing to work. Hmm. Going back to the uh, the whole uh, migration program, you need to commit yourself to be working and living in these municipalities for at least five years. Yeah. And that's one of the deals, right? So they want people to sort of not just come there, you know, spend a few years and go somewhere else, but someone who can take fruit and actually settle down for the long haul. Right. So the area these people are returning to, I just want to describe it a little. The Fukushima number one nuclear plant sits on the east coast of Japan, and it's about 240 kilometers or 150 miles north of Tokyo. The 12 municipalities you mentioned earlier are all nearby, 
And there's this thing called the difficult to return to zone, which kind of spills westward and northward from the plant. And it touches many of the municipalities, but it completely covers the towns of Futaba and Okuma. That's correct. These villages and towns had a combined population of about uh, 147,000 people uh, mm-hmm. prior to the disaster. That figure is now, uh, it stands a little below 65,000. And actually, uh, a majority of the 65,000 figure, they're people living in Minamisoma, which is the biggest city among the 12 municipalities. So the other villages and towns, you know, you got maybe a few thousand people or less, perhaps. Okay. And that's kind of why Fukushima is trying to pay people to come back or just move in for the first time. Well, the thing is, you know, when these areas fell under evacuation orders and people were sort of asked to move out, they either moved out to uh, different cities in Fukushima or elsewhere, some other prefecture, and they would eventually start to take root. You know, they might buy a new house, they might uh, start a new family, they might find a new job. So the thing is like, you know, now that evacuation orders are lifted for most of the communities and they want people to come back, it's very hard once they left the community to sort of come back again. Yeah. Just to catch people up, the evacuation orders started being lifted in 2014, and by 2017, most of the residential areas that weren't in the difficult-to-return-to zone were cleared for repopulation. But does the mere existence of this zone deter people from moving in? Well, the difficult-to-return zone... Perhaps, you know, there's maybe a little bit of that radiation stigma still left. The environmental radiation levels in areas uh, outside the no-go zones are fine. You know, it's, there's, mm. there's nothing too much to worry about. But I think if you remember uh, after the, uh, the disasters, especially the first few years or so, uh, the farm produced in uh, Fukushima, the fish, I think there was a lot of talk about, you know, whether they're contaminated or not. Mm. And uh, the sales plummeted. Um, agricultural sort of uh, farmers were having a really hard time. And these things, I think they've recovered somewhat, but uh, there is sort of like a lingering stigma perhaps attached to the region, unfortunately. Right. Well, people may not have been moving in, but in their absence, wild animals have. More on the area's new residents in a moment. It's not just fear of radiation preventing residents from returning to Naraha. After years of abandonment, towns in the area have been overrun by wild boars. They're ravaging homes and everything in their path. Alex, you wrote another piece for the Japan Times this week about rewilding. First, can you explain to us what rewilding is? Well, the definition for rewilding is when wildlife comes back to an area, basically restoring land or an area into its uncultivated state. Okay, so where was wildlife at the beginning of this disaster? So when the Fukushima nuclear plant meltdowns happened in March of 2011, scientists say animals in the area were exposed to 100 times the amount of radiation considered safe for them. What animals are you talking about in this case? So animals that have kind of returned to the area are black bears, for example, wild boars, macaques, uh, which are those snow monkeys you sometimes see in pictures bathing in uh, onsen hot springs, civets, uh, tanuki, and deer, uh, and many more. And uh, let's take the black bears, for example. They're called the tsukinowagama in Japanese. Um, A scientist I spoke to named Koji Yamazaki said he's been setting up uh, trail cameras in the region Mm. to capture footage of these animals. And he said he's been surprised that it appeared the bears have been sort of migrating east Uh, some from Niigata Prefecture, east into the more coastal region. Hmm. Is that enough to affect the human population in the area? 
Well, he's been setting up trail cameras in the more coastal regions as well, some close to the reactors, some further away. And he's seen a lot of wild boar, uh, Japanese macaques. Uh, these animals are known crop raiders, and uh, they have been sort of uh, foraging for food in uh, agricultural land and actually uh, creating quite significant damage. So, yes, these animals are encroaching human-populated areas because it was deserted for quite a long time. Yeah, you said in your piece that it's been a particular problem for Fukushima's farmers, that damage from animal life, 70% of it being from like monkeys, wild boar, and civets cost 140 million yen in 2021, and that's more than $1 million. Right, and on top of that, for example, uh, in the village of Itate that I visited, only about 30% of its residents have returned. And it's sort of an inland village in the Abakuma Mountains to the north and west of the Fukushima plant. It has a lot of woodland, it's very mountainous, so animals are thriving there. And they're venturing into a town and scavenging farms and gardens. Hmm. You are also saying in your piece that while those inhabited areas have been largely decontaminated, the same can't be said for the forests and mountain areas. Is that right? Right. I mean, it's a vast area that, you know, it covers. And these animals will be eating perhaps radiation-contaminated fruit, meaning uh, there's some sort of exposure, radiation exposure uh, in them that can be detected. Mm-hmm. Interesting thing is that scientists have been monitoring, uh, for example, the uh, the monkeys because they're our closest relatives, mm-hmm. these primates. And they've noticed that there hasn't been a major impact on the ones that live there now in terms of uh, radiation exposure and uh, the impact of that to their physiological systems. Really? There hasn't been anything that's gone wrong with them? No, no. I mean, there have been uh, various anomalies being observed. Um, For example, uh, the monkeys in the area are slightly anemic and they have fewer bone marrow cells. So the scientists aren't saying everything is okay, obviously. Uh, They want to continue their studies, of course, to uh, check for long-term effects. So while various effects have been observed, I think the uh, conclusion so far is that there are no major, major anomalies being observed in these animals so far. But research continues. And, you know, scientists are also checking wild boar because they're related to pigs and pigs have very similar moon systems to humans. They are finding radiation in the boars and uh, it is affecting their immune system somewhat, but it's not to an extent where you'll find sort of uh, Godzilla boars roaming around. (laughs) Well, that's good news. Um, I will say, though, my trainer has family out in Ibaraki and Chiba, and he says that there's been an increase in wild boar there and that people have been hunting them for food. But he doesn't recommend it. He says they're kind of mangy looking. Yeah, right now the the rise in boar population is more of a problem with regards to the safety of the people living there and to their property, especially agricultural crops and produce. So um, hunting associations in Fukushima have been trying to cull the population uh, before it gets out of hand. I will say, though, I wouldn't recommend eating the boar from the coastal region, perhaps because of the possibility of exposure to radiation. Yeah, okay, no worries. I'll keep it off my menu. But Fukushima isn't the only region that's having to deal with an increase in boars and bears, however. More on that after the break. What you're hearing there is a robotic wolf that was created to scare away bears. Alex, you've done a lot of research on the Japanese wolf. Uh, No luck finding one just yet. But how about you describe this robotic wolf to our listeners? Sure. Um, It's about the size of a, uh, I guess, mid-sized to large-sized dog. It has brown shaggy fur, glowing red eyes, and it really looks like something out of the thriller video. (laughs) Too bad it doesn't sound like Michael Jackson. (laughs) Yeah. 
So you wrote about this contraption last year as part of a piece titled, With Wildlife Pests on the Rise, Japan Turns to Novel Countermeasures. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. It seems from reading that article, Fukushima isn't the only place that is dealing with rewilding. Right. Well, you might not want to call it rewilding in other areas, perhaps in the strict terms of the definition. But uh, yeah, um, wild boar and deer especially have been uh, creating a lot of damage all across Japan, actually. I think in recent years, the damage has been around 16 billion yen a year. Hmm. Boar, deer, macaques, tanuki, these animals have been uh, ravaging a lot of farmland. What's causing this increase in the animal population? So Japan wasn't always teeming with wild animals. In fact, many of these species were on the verge of extinction by the early 20th century. The nation was really hungry for natural resources amid its rapid modernization. That demolished uh, these wild animals' habitats. A coal and copper mine project destroyed mountains. The forests were raised for lumber and charcoal. Mm. A flourishing pelt market saw animals fervently hunted down. So it was only after World War II that legal protection began to be established for these animals. It was also a period that saw Japan embark on a nationwide reforestation campaign in an effort to rebuild the country's woodstocks. Such measures saw the population of wild animals recover, initially unbeknownst to their human predators. Oh, right. And in the 1980s, I think, people started seeing cases of deer suddenly appearing in farms and causing all sorts of damage. But since these animals were banned from being hunted or captured, according to regulations, there wasn't much people really could do about them. Mm -hmm. And then in 1999, the Wildlife Protection and Hunting Law underwent a major revision, and Japan's first wildlife management system was introduced. And this was aimed at conserving biodiversity and controlling pest damage. And what this means is that prefecture can now stipulate their own plans based on data and expert opinions to create like a nice balance in terms of animal population. So in the case of Fukushima, I can understand that there's been a lack of people living there, so it may prove more attractive to wild animals. But how do you explain the rise in other parts of the country? Well, it goes back to uh, Japan's demographic issue, depopulation, the graying population, a lot of rural villages, their populations are shrinking, some are even uh, becoming abandoned call them Haisong, abandoned villages. So what happens is, you know, areas where people used to live are now being overtaken by uh, wildlife. And this has been probably the case with Fukushima as well before the disaster. It's like a national phenomenon, right? You mm. cannot invest in these rural villages as much as you can before just because you don't have enough people there. So what happened in Fukushima was uh, you have this demographic issue, uh, the wildlife proliferation issue, as the same as anywhere else in Japan. And then the disaster strikes and you have these vast swaths of land suddenly deserted. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, perhaps what we're seeing in Fukushima now in terms of wildlife proliferation is what perhaps other regional or rural communities in Japan might face in the coming decades. Right. So it's almost like in Fukushima, it was sped up because of the disaster. But really, this is something that's been playing out in other parts of Japan over a number of decades. Right. So in many places, animals are causing damage to crops, other produce, and in some cases, they're causing physical harm to the local population, which naturally led to the rise in people trying to hunt them down. I actually don't associate Japan with being a nation of hunters. Well, it's very difficult to get a gun here. Japan's famously strict when it comes to gun laws. However, uh, you can go hunting. You can get a license if you invest yourself for a few months, take a test, get a background check from the police. And there are, as I mentioned before, there are hunting associations, many hunting associations. I think almost all municipalities have them because they need to cull these wild animals to protect their crops. 
But then it goes back to the whole uh, aging Japan issue. These hunters are getting old. I think they're having a hard time recruiting uh, more younger hunters. Mm. And that leads to uh, sort of other methods to keep them away. I think the most popular and effective are having these electrified fences. Okay. Um, however, they can be quite expensive and difficult to maintain. I mean, they can't be more expensive than robotic wolves. Right. <laughs> yeah. Those wolves are, uh, I think, quite expensive, actually. So, Were those wolves a success? Well, if you recall, a few years back when they actually first produced it, uh, a lot of foreign media really jumped on to the robotic wolf. I yeah. think um, most of the big uh, newspapers and magazines or news outlets sort of featured them because it's, you know, the, the visuals are quite sort of entertaining, uh -huh. if I can say that. And I think it did work in certain communities. The problem is, you know, wild boar are extremely smart animals. And once they realize that, you know, it's a gimmick, they might sort of like realize that, okay, I don't need to be scared of these sort of robot wolves. And they start sort of going under their radar. So what the company's doing now is they're, they teamed up with a car maker and they, they want to make like an autonomous robotic wolf that can move on its own. Right. And things like that. Various, you know, new technologies are being incorporated, but the, uh, the battle wages on. Indeed it does. Alex Martin, thanks for joining us again on Deep Dive. Thank you, Sean. My thanks again to Alex for coming on the show. He's written extensively about the problems rural Japan is facing with dwindling populations. We'll put links to those stories mentioned in the podcast in the show notes. Elsewhere in the Japan Times, the cabinet approved a bill Tuesday that seeks to improve immigration law. The opposition Constitutional Democratic Party of Japan says the bill is unacceptable in its current form and isn't in line with international standards. And Japan's Aerospace Exploration Agency suffered a setback when its next-generation H-3 rocket failed after liftoff on Tuesday, prompting the agency to issue a self-destruct command. The H-3 had been billed as a flexible and cost-effective new flagship. The space agency now says it will need to investigate the data. The incident came a week after JAXA announced two new candidates to become astronauts, 46-year-old disaster prevention specialist Makoto Suwa and 28-year-old surgeon Ayu Yoneda. Yoneda is now on track to become the third Japanese woman in space after Chiaki Mukai and Naoko Yamazaki. For more news on Japan, Asia, and beyond, visit our website at www.japantimes.co.jp. If you've enjoyed this week's episode, please do leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcasting platform you use. It really does help others find the show. Production for Deep Dive is by Dave Cortez. Our intern is Natalia Makohon. The outgoing song was written by Oscar Boyd, and our theme song is by the Japanese musician 4L. Until next time, I'm Sean McKenna. Potsukare-sama. Deep Dive.